Chapter Sixteen of Zadig. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle White. Zadig, or The Book of Fate, by Voltaire. Chapter Sixteen. THE TOURNAMENTS The queen was received at Babylon with all the transports of joy that could possibly be expressed for the safe return of so illustrious and so beautiful a personage that had run through such a long series of misfortunes. Babylon, at that time, seemed to be perfectly serene and quiet. As for the young prince of Hyrcania, he was slain in battle. The Babylonians, who were the victors, declared that Astarte should marry that candidate for the crown, who should gain it by a fair and impartial election. They were determined that the most valuable post of honor in the world, namely that of being the royal consort of Astarte and the sovereign of Babylon, should be the result of merit only, and not be procured by any party factions or court intrigues. A solemn oath was voluntarily taken by all parties that he who should distinguish himself by his superior valour and wisdom should unanimously be acknowledged the sovereign elect. A spacious list, or circus, was pitched upon, surrounded with commodious seats, erected in an amphitheatrical manner, and richly embellished some few leagues from the city. Thither the combatants or champions were to repair, completely accoutred. Each of them had a distinct apartment to himself behind the lists, where no soul could either see them or know who they were. They were to enter the lists four several times. Those who were so happy as to conquer four competitors were afterwards to engage each other in single combat, in order that he who should remain master of the field should be proclaimed the happy victor. Four days afterwards they were to meet again, accoutred as before, and to explain all such enigmas or riddles as the Magi should think proper to propose. If their queries should prove too intricate and perplexed for them to resolve, they were to have recourse to the lists again, and after that to fresh enigmas, before they could be entitled to the election, so that the tournaments were to be continued till one of the candidates should be twice a victor, and shine as conspicuous, with respect to his internal qualities, as to his dexterity and address in heroic achievements. The queen, in the meantime, was to be narrowly watched, and allowed only to be a spectator of both their amusements, at some considerable distance, and moreover, to be covered with a veil. Nor was she indulged so far as to speak one single word to any candidate whomsoever, in order to prevent the least jealousy or suspicion either of partiality or injustice. Astarte took care, by the courier, to inform her lover of all the preliminary articles above mentioned, not doubting but that he would exert both his courage and understanding for her sake, beyond any of the other competitors. Zadig accordingly set out for Babylon, and besought the goddess Venus, not only to fortify his courage, but to illuminate his mind with wisdom on this important occasion. The night before these martial achievements were to commence, Zadig arrived upon the banks of the Euphrates. He inscribed his device amongst the list of combatants, concealing, at the same time, 
both his person and name, as the laws of the election required, and accordingly withdrew to the apartment that was provided for him, according to his lot. Kador, who was just returned to Babylon, having hunted all Egypt over to no purpose in hopes to find his friend Zadig, brought a complete set of armor into his lodge, by express orders from the queen. She sent him likewise one of the finest horses in all Persia. Zadig knew that these presents could come from nobody but his dear Astarte, which redoubled his vigor and his hopes. The next morning, the queen being seated under a canopy of state, enriched with precious stones, and the amphitheaters being crowded with gentlemen and ladies of all ranks and conditions from Babylon, the competitors made their personal appearance in the circus. Each of them went up to the Grand Magus, and laid down his particular device at his feet. The devices were drawn by lot. That of Zadig was the last. The first that advanced was a grande, one Itabod by name, immensely rich, indeed, and very haughty, but no ways courageous, exceedingly awkward, and a man of no acquired parts. The sycophants that hovered round about him flattered him, that a man of his merit couldn't fail of being king. He imperiously replied, One of my merit must be king. Whereupon he was armed cap a pay. His armor was made of pure gold, enameled with green. The housings of his saddle were green, and his lance embellished with green ribbons. Every one was sensible, at first sight, by Itabod's manner of managing his horse, that he was not the man whom heaven had pitched upon to sway the Babylonish scepter. The first combatant that tilted with him threw him out of the saddle. The second flung him quite over the crouper, and laid him sprawling on the ground with his heels quivering in the air. Itabad, tis true, remounted, but with so ill a grace, that a universal laugh went round the amphitheatre. The third, disdaining to use his lance, made only a feint at him, then catched hold of his right leg, and whirling him round, threw him flat upon the sand. The esquires, who were the attendants, ran to his assistance, and with a sneer remounted him. The fourth combatant catched hold of his left leg, and unhorsed him again. He was conveyed through the hissing multitude to his lodge, where, according to the law in that case provided, he was to pass the night. And as he hobbled along, said he to the esquires, what a sad misfortune is this to one of my birth and character! The other champions played their parts much better, and all came off with credit. Some conquered two of their antagonists, and others were so far successful as to get the better of three. None of them, however, except Prince Hotham, vanquished four. Zadig, at last, entered the lists, and dismounted all four opponents, one after the other, with the utmost ease, and with such an air and grace as gained him universal applause. As the case stood thus, Zadig and Hotam were to close the day's entertainment in a single combat. The armor of the latter was of a blue color mixed with gold, and the housings of his saddle were of the same, those of the former white as snow. The multitude were divided in their wishes. The knight in blue was the favorite of some of the ladies, and others again were admirers of the cavalier in white. The queen, whose heart was in a perfect palpitation, put up her secret prayers to Venus to assist her darling hero. 
the two champions making their passes and their voltas, with the utmost dexterity and address, and keeping firm in their saddles, gave each other such rebuffs with their lances, that all the spectators, the queen only excepted, wished for two kings of Babylon. At last, their horses being tired, and both their lances broke, Zadig made use of the following stratagem, which his antagonist wasn't any way apprised of. He got artfully behind him, and shooting with a spring on his horse's buttocks, grasped him close, threw him headlong on the sand, then jumped into his seat and wheeled round Prince Hottam, while he lay sprawling on the ground. All the spectators in general, with loud acclamations, cried out, Victory! Victory! in favor of the champion in white. Otam, incensed to the last degree, got up and drew his sword. Zadig sprang from his horse with his saber in his hand. Now behold the two chieftains upon their legs, commencing a new trial of skill, where they seemed to get the better of each other alternately, for both were strong, and both were active. The feathers of their helmets, the studs of their bracelets, their coats of mail, flew about in pieces, through the dry blows which they a thousand times repeated. They struck at each other sometimes with the edge of their swords, at other times they pushed, as occasion offered, now on the right, then on the left, now on the head, then at the breast. They retreated, they advanced, they kept at a distance, they closed again, they grasped each other, turning and twisting like two serpents, and engaged each other as fiercely as two Libyan lions fighting for their prey. Their swords struck fire almost at every blow. At last, Zadig, in order to recover his breath, for a moment or two stood still, and afterwards, making a feint at the prince, threw him on his back and disarmed him. Otam, thereupon, cried out, O thou knight of the white armor! "'Tis you only are destined to be the king of Babylon.' The queen was perfectly transported. The two champions were reconducted to their separate lodges, as the others had been before them, in conformity to the laws prescribed. Several mutes were ordered to wait on the champions, and carry them some proper refreshment. We'll leave the reader to judge whether the queen's dwarf was not appointed to wait on Zadig on this happy occasion. After supper the mutes withdrew and left the combatants to rest their wearied limbs till the next morning, at which time the victor was to produce his device, before the Grand Magus, in order to confer notes, and discover the hero, whoever he might be. Zadig slept very sound, notwithstanding his amorous regard for the queen, being perfectly fatigued. Edebod, who lay in the lodge contiguous to his, could not once close his eyes for vexation, he got up, therefore, in the dead of the night, stole imperceptibly into Zadig's apartment, took his white armor and device away with him, and substituted his green one in its place. As soon as the day began to dawn, he repaired, with a seemingly undaunted courage, to the Grand Majus, to inform him that he was the mighty hero, the happy victor. Without the least hesitation, he was gained his point, and was proclaimed victor before Zadig was awake. Astarte, astonished at this unexpected disappointment, returned with a heart overwhelmed with despair to the court of Babylon. Almost all the spectators were moved off from the amphitheatre before Zadig waked. He hunted for his arms, but could find nothing but those in green. He was obliged, though sorely against his will, to put it on, having nothing else in his lodge to appear in. Confounded and big with resentment, he dressed himself and made his personal appearance in that despicable equipage. The populace that were left behind in that circus hissed him every step he took, 
they made a ring about him and treated him with all the marks of ignominy and contempt. The most cowardly wretch breathing was never sure so sweated or hunted down as poor Zadig. He grew quite out of patience at last and cut his way through the insulting mob with his rival's saber. But he did not know what measures to pursue or how to rectify so gross a mistake. It was not in his power to have a sight of the queen. He could never recover the white armor again which she had sent him. That was the compromise, or the engagement, to which the combatants had all unanimously agreed. Thus, as he was on the one hand, plunged in an abyss of sorrow, so, on the other, he was almost drove distracted with vexation and resentment. He withdrew, therefore, in a solitary mood, to the banks of the Euphrates, now fully persuaded that his impropitious star had shed its most baleful influence on him, and that his misfortunes were irretrievable, revolving in his mind all his disappointments from his first adventure with the court coquet, who had entertained an utter aversion to a blind eye, down to his late loss of his white armor. See, said he, the fatal consequence of being a sluggard. Had I been more vigilant, I had been the king of Babylon. But what is more, I had been happy in the embraces of my dearest Astarte. All the knowledge of books or mankind, all the personal valor that I can boast of, has only proved an aggravation of my sorrows. He carried the point so far at last, as to murmur at the unequal dispensations of divine providence, and was tempted to believe that all occurrences were governed by a malignant destiny, which never failed to oppress the virtuous, and always crowned the actions of such villains as the Green Knight, with uncommon success. In one of his frantic fits, he put on the green armor that had created him such a world of disgrace. A merchant happening to pass by, he sold it to him for a trifle, and took in exchange nothing more than a mantle and a cap. In this disguise, he took a solitary walk along the banks of the Euphrates, every minute reflecting in his mind on the partial proceedings of Providence, which never ceased to torment him. End of chapter 16 Recording by Michelle White, Ottawa, Canada